3CR broadcasts on the stolen land of the Wadawurrung and the Bunurung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present, emerging, and we acknowledge that a treaty was never signed and that sovereignty was never ceded. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We've got a full studio in today. Yeah, four of us here. Excellent. And who yeah. are we for anyone who's just tuning in to Monday Breakfast for the first time ever? I'm Alice. I'm Claudia. I'm Patty. And I'm Ella. Nice to be with you, everyone. Yeah, it's been a while, but it feels good. Yeah. <laughs> it's strange, but good. Strange, but good. <laughs> and um, how is everyone's weekend? Yeah. Pretty lazy. Pretty, uh, well, pretty mixed for me. I actually... Um, Enjoyed some new virtual experiences. I listened to a orchestral performance on Friday night. A friend was playing the cello in the Melbourne Baroque Orchestra and uh, they had a live stream of the performance on Thursday night but then you could watch it uh, for 48 hours so we bought a ticket and it was it was it was just splendid. It was wonderful. Oh. So that was my first time watching or listening to uh, classical music in that forum. Yeah, and then Sunday I also bought a ticket for a literary event at the Perth Festival, which was also um, a live stream. So that was, yeah, two firsts for me. Wow. <laughs> Busy weekend. <but laughs> In front of the television. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm yeah. sure I did some other things as well. But <laughs> you um, yeah, on Saturday I went along to the Rally for Refugees, which was really good. Um, so yeah, we started off at the State Library and marched up to the Park Hotel, or out the front of the Park Hotel, um, where there's still 13 men, I believe, detained. Um, so yeah, it was a good turnout. Um, the mood was a bit more hopeful after the recent um, releases. Um, and yeah, nice to see everyone out there. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> and other than that, pretty sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> What about you, Alice? Yeah, um, not a lot at all. I felt like I didn't, yeah, do anything with my weekend, so nothing to report here, peeps. Just <laughs> a lot of TV. <laughs> <laughs> all for the best. So, yeah, I, I just worked, but it's good, good to be back in studio. And um, what do we have on for the show today? I think we've got a very full show today. We're starting off with uh, an interview with James Norman, who's a writer and climate, climate activist, and uh, he spoke with Carly from Thursday Breakfast uh, about a documentary film that's premiering tomorrow night at the Transitions Festival called Beyond the Burning. So that'll be about fire practices post-fire. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, we'll hear about what's happening in terms of restoration of wildlife and so forth in that interview. Um, and I've also got uh, part two of the interview, uh, not, it wasn't actually an interview, it was a discussion that Anne Alley uh, was part of. She's a Labor MP and academic and counter-terrorism ex- uh, expert and she'll, she'll be talking about what Australia's been doing to combat the rise of far-right extremism. Uh, finally, from me... 
at 8 o'clock. I'll be talking to John Bisset, the CEO of Community Broadcasting Association Australia, about the impact of Facebook's uh, actions last week where uh, a huge number of Facebook pages went blank on Thursday and uh, we'll be hearing about how that's affected the community media sector. And maybe we should just give out the text number, which is 0488 809 So if you've got any thoughts about the Facebook uh, situation, maybe you wanted to message, it, message us and let us know how it's affected you, how it's affected your ability to consume news. Um, yeah, it'd be great to hear from people um, who are listening to the show about, yeah, exactly that, how it's affected them. And yeah, absolutely. Our first time using the text line, and we'd love to hear from you all. <laughs> and whether um, anybody is uh, aware of organisations whose Facebook page hasn't been restored, because I believe that there's um, they've promised to restore them all in a week, so there's obviously still uh, organisations that are affected. Mm-hmm. One interesting tweet on the situation I saw was that uh, they were... They, they said that, you know, how easy it was for Facebook to take down all these pages. You think that the far-right hate and uh, racism that, that's rampant, that it's so hard to ban, even, no matter how many times you report it. Yeah, this last year has been interesting, I think, because there's all these um, groups like, yeah, Facebook and YouTube, et cetera, that say it's impossible to moderate, um, but suddenly they seem to be able to do it um, in terms of COVID news or COVID safety, which is great, but why can't it be done all the time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm. Who did you interview this week? So on Friday I spoke with Auntie Hazel from the Grandmothers Against Removals and they're based in um, New South Wales where where Auntie Hazel is and they had a rally two Fridays ago now about um, the removal of two Aboriginal children who have actually been taken away from their family, country and community to England. So they're now in the UK with two British foster carers who will not bring them back. Um, Despite the government saying to the carers that they will provide housing, they'll give them a car, they'll give them a salary, they'll give them everything if they return, um, the carers won't return with the children. And the family are supposed to have visiting rights, which obviously they don't have if the children are in the UK. So that was what their rally was about on Friday. So I just spoke to Auntie Hazel a bit about that. And we, we ended up speaking for quite a long time. So I'm going to play the interview um, in separate parts. So today we're just listening to part one, which is mostly about this rally and exactly what's happened with these children, how it's affected the family. And then part two we'll listen to next week, which is a further conversation about the stolen generation and really how it, how it hasn't stopped. Um, so, yeah, we're going to listen to that at around 7.40, I think. So make sure you tuned in for that. Fantastic. And uh, at, at the end of the show, uh, a bit of a lighter news piece, we're going to hear from Tana Douglas, who's the author of Loud, and she was the first female roadie. So she's got some, some really cool stories. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, maybe to start things off, uh, we could listen to Better Things by Kian.
Okay, that was Kian with Better Things. And now we're going to hear from Carly from 3CR Thursday Breakfast. She spoke with James Norman, scriptwriter, interviewer and media advisor, featured in Beyond the Burning, a documentary premiering at the Transitions Film Festival on the 23rd of February, which is tomorrow evening, and also available online. The film explores how we can recover from the 2019 bushfires on Kulin Nation's land using Indigenous land management practices, as well as solar energy. So here's Carly uh, to introduce James Norman. James Norman is a Melbourne writer, media manager and climate activist. He is the author of the book Bob Brown, Gentle Revolutionary, a biography of Bob Brown, the former Greens leader. He has also worked for several Australian environmental NGOs, including Greenpeace, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, Environment Victoria, and the Australian Conservation Foundation. And today he joins us on 3CR to talk about Beyond the Burning, which is a film that is going to have its world premiere next Tuesday, the 23rd of February. Welcome, James. Thanks for joining us on 3CR. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. (laughs) So can you tell us a bit more about Beyond the Burning, of which you're a scriptwriter and interviewer in the film? Yeah, sure. Um, so this project really came about uh, when uh, – it was really when the bushfires sort of hit, you know, last summer. And uh, I think uh, Environment Victoria really realised that it was going to have a profound impact on their campaigning at that time. And, you know, they really wanted to sort of shift their campaigning to – engage with these fires and the impacts, um, you know, but do it in a way that was really connecting with the people who were directly impacted on the ground. So, you know, um, I just got a call from them and, um, I, you know, I've worked as a, as a media advisor for some time, so they just asked me um, if I had some time to help out, and I did. Um, so the first part of this project was really just... Uh, connecting with some of those people who've been directly impacted by the fires and trying to help sort of get their stories out, you know. So we, um, you know, we connected them with journalists who are writing about particular angles on the fires and we helped them to write, you know, like opinion pieces that we had published in various places, um, which were really just giving sort of first-hand accounts on on how the bushfires had impacted and also... Um, you know, which is something that the film has taken up is, is, you know, how that made people feel in terms of, um, you know, the government's inaction on climate change. So, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of the people who we used for those initial stories and also in the film are really talking about, you know, how this has become very personal for them that, you know, they'd lost their home. You know, they've lost the forests that they love around where they live. They've seen animals, um, getting wiped out. Uh, and that just really sort of exacerbates the frustration, I think, that many people feel about how Australia is just really doing nothing when it comes to climate change. So, yeah, to follow on from that, I mean, I think the film just tried to, you know, I guess capture some of those voices again. Um, and so we also wanted to incorporate the story of, things like the loss of rainforests in in Victoria and animals during the fires, Um, the impacts uh, on industries like beekeeping, uh, not just from the fires, but also from poor forest management. Um, 
So, you know, that's been over a long period of time. And I think that story really helped to counteract this myth that was going around out there that somehow greenies are responsible for bad forest management, you know, when clearly it comes down to, you know, just a history of clear felling the forests, you know, which has left what one of the people in the interviews, Ian Kane, describes as um, kind of like a, um, a tinderbox, you know, that the forests are cleared, then they leave um, these plantation forests, which are planted way too close together, and they're easy to, you know, exacerbated by the dryness from climate change. Uh, they they just become you know very easy to reignite and 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 played a huge role in really how these these bushfires um, came about. Um, on top of that, we knew from the start that it was really essential to in, incorporate um, some uh, genuine indigenous voices into the into the film. Um, so you know, for example, we um, we, we Meet myself and the filmmaker, uh, David Frangie, uh, we, we went on a few trips up to East Gippsland. On one of those trips, we visited uh, a couple of Indigenous communities. Um, one was uh, in Lake Tyres, and in the film we heard, hear from uh, an elder there, Charmaine Sellings, and she uh, is actually started like a, a women's um, firefighting service up in, up in Lake Tyres. Um, and... You know, I mean, none of this was scripted. So we, you know, we, we just wanted to hear the real stories of, you know, how, how they'd been impacted, um, which was quite interesting, you know, because we often think of, you know, Indigenous fire management techniques, are, you know, uh, need to be listened to. But their story was, you know, over many generations, they'd had missionaries come into their community and they'd lost a lot of the language uh, and the culture uh, and that sort of traditional tradition of fire fire management. So... Um, you know, that, that was kind of a sad story, but now they'd set up this firefighting service just to try to basically protect their own community. Um, but they're very much sort of taking their cues from the CFA and so forth. Um, so that, that was quite an interesting story. Um, and then we went and visited another community, the Gunnakurnai, um, which is up sort of near Lake's entrance. And that's a much more positive story about how uh, actually, after many, many years of lobbying, um, they've actually sort of been given a place at the table and there's a whole lot of um, uh, projects in place which are allowing their people to actually um, be part of the, the, the forest management. They're, you know, employing uh, Indigenous uh, fire um, crews to, to, to basically monitor the impacts of the fires on, on their regions and the impacts, for example, on their totem animals and so forth. Um, and that's led by a woman called Kathy Thomas uh, and a guy called uh, Russell Mullet. Uh, and they're really, that, that's quite a hopeful thing to come out of the story, actually, that, you know, after, you know, after the devastation of the fires, at least there is some kind of consultation now going on and some employment, meaningful employment being created. Um, you know, which interestingly, um, Kathy Thomas in the film, she describes that as, you know, doing that work um, is not only healing the, the country, but it's actually helping to heal the, those, the people, you know, by being out in the land and doing that work, um, which I, I think is a really, really interesting idea. Um, and, you know, people might be familiar with um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, you know, the uh, braiding sweetgrass. She talks about that as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. The idea. Sorry, go on. Yeah, she's oh, she's a Potawatomi um, woman from Turtle Island. It's a brilliant book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think of that quote that she says, action on behalf of life transforms because the relationship between self and the world is reciprocal. It's not a question of first getting enlightened and saved and then action, uh, um, and then acting uh, as we work to heal the earth, the earth heals us. And, you know, some of those kind of really positive stories also come out in the film. Yeah, and no, that's a fantastic book and um it's also a fantastic book by Victor Stephenson as well, Fire Country. Um, yeah, that talks about indigenous land use practices as yeah, being a way to really understand the land um, and then in turn be able to like exist really um, because yeah, we know that climate change is going to deeply affect the way that we move forward, which I guess is what Transitions Film Festival um, is trying to explore, especially showcasing films like Beyond the Burning. Can you also talk a bit about, because I know that the film focused on how we could recover from the bushfires using Indigenous land management practices, as well as solar energy. Can you talk a little bit about how the film explores solar energy and other forms of renewable energy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, I mean, we do try to leave the film on, on a bit of a positive note because, you know, the, the first part of the film is pretty, it's pretty confronting. You know, it's really like the raw, you know, both footage often from people's mobile phone cameras of the fires and, and the impacts on communities. Uh, and also, you know, in some of those, um, sort of rainforest areas, which really have been, you know, destroyed in the sense of, you know, it takes really generations for that to, to grow back. Um, but, yeah, the, the positive uh, aspect, I think, is that um, renewables really came to be at the centre of the recovery uh, in East Gippsland in, in, in some ways. Um, so, you know, that manifested itself in ways like some of the uh, solar providers that we interview in the film talked about, you know, how they just donated sort of standalone um, solar systems to wildlife sanctuaries you know, so they could actually um, remain connected to the power grid, which was essential, you know, for example, to power humidity cribs for animals and things like that. Um, and so it, it just really shows how it really makes sense on every level, you know, environmentally, economically and practical to have these kind of standalone renewable power solutions with batteries to keep the power on, even during and after disasters on this kind of scale actually strike. Um, because otherwise, you know, if you're waiting for the power grid to be connected, um, yet for starters, you have no power during the, immediately during the disaster and in the immediate aftermath. And, you know, in many cases, it would take months for that to be reconnected. Um, whereas, you know, if, if you have these solar systems in place, then, you know, at least you can carry on with your life or in this case, carry on looking, you know, the important work of looking after animals. Yeah. Absolutely, and I guess that's one of the stories that you didn't really, well, I didn't hear anyway, especially in mainstream media. Yeah, is there anything that you're hoping listeners take away or like film watchers take away from Beyond the Burning? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, what's happened uh, over the, the last year, which has obviously been just such a such a crazy year on so many levels and, you know, quite a traumatic one for, for a lot of people, is that, you know, um, you know, COVID and, and, and all that has, has sort of taken the focus off um, the trauma, which is still, you know, still present and, and, and still going on for people who, 
you know, who did lose their homes and, and, and their livelihoods through these fires. And so we're really hoping to shine the light back onto that and to provide this platform, you know, to, to articulate some of those stories, which often, for whatever reason, don't make it into the mainstream media. James, that was James Norman talking to Carly Bask from 3CR Thursday Breakfast. For more information about the Transitions Film Festival and how to see this film, visit transitionsfilmfestival.com. That's transitionsfilmfestival, all one word, dot com. Now, last week we shared a discussion from Perth Labor MP Dr Anne Alley on the rise of far-right extremism in Australia. Dr Alley is an expert in international counterterrorism. She's Australia's first female federal parliamentarian of Muslim faith and has been an advisor to the United Nations Security Council. Last week she explained that ASIO reports an increase of up to 40% of its counter-terrorism work is now centred on far-right extremism. And that's a, a huge increase from just four to five years ago when it was only 10% of their portfolio. So this week we're going to hear a little bit more from Dr Ali's discussion. She's going to tell us how Australia is responding to the threat of far-right supremism. Australia has the broadest and most comprehensive suite of laws related to terrorism or terrorism-related offences, more than any other Western country, more than any other Western country, more than Canada, more than the US, more than the UK, even though we have not had a, a mass casualty attack on our soil. We have the broadest suite and the most far-reaching, far-reaching and far-ranging terrorism laws of any Western country. And the reason for that is because traditionally the way that we've dealt with terrorism has been with the legislative response. And so it kind of grew into this thing that we have layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of laws to deal with terrorism. What we haven't done equally comprehensively has been to really look at how terrorism, extremism, violent extremism in all its forms is a battle for hearts and minds. And laws don't change hearts and minds. If that was the case, laws against murder means there would be no murders, right? Laws don't change behaviour. Laws don't change hearts and minds. So we've kind of... Um, neglected this aspect, which I think is a, is a central and should be a centrepiece of our counterterrorism efforts. We've left that part to civil society and a civil society that has not been well equipped with dealing with forms of extremism in the way that civil society in parts of Europe have been really well equipped with dealing with forms of terrorism. I mean, in Europe, you have the Radicalisation Awareness Network, which is huge, hugely funded, and this huge network across all different European countries to deal with radicalisation. You have, um, uh, and you have had for, for many years, um, civil society groups that have been funded 
and uh, are very well equipped to deal with different forms of extremism. But we haven't had that in Australia. And we still don't have that mm. in Australia. It was part of the reason that I started PAVE was to develop civil society capacity to deal with these early intervention in extremism, the prevention side of it. And I think as part of that, that's where we can do the media work as well, just coming back to the, to the question. So the answer is we've, we've had so much focus on the legislative response, uh, and not a balanced focus on the civil society response. Uh, and I, I think, and I've been advocating for much more focus on developing civil society structures and civil society capabilities to deal with early intervention and prevention. Yeah, look, I, I guess, you know, so many of the things you've said, and particularly in terms of how uh, New Zealand responded and, as you said, kind of tried to, to get ahead, uh, I guess it makes me think about a, a, a meta question, and that is, I mean, experts, you know, I'm an economist, I get frustrated by the economics debate, you know, medical scientists get frustrated by debates about how to deal with an epidemic. Um, makes me realise it must be excruciatingly difficult to have expertise in counterterrorism and extremism because I, I really I wonder what your perception is of where policymakers in Australia have got their expertise from. I mean, people in the military didn't learn how to deal with terrorism 20 or 30 years ago. They learned how to fought conventional wars. People uh, in counterterrorism have got really quite different skills, you know, from uh, from the kind of hearts and minds campaign you're talking about. So, you know, as a country, not just Australia, as any country, how do we go about actually having some evidence basis for dealing with something both as rare but as shocking as as acts of terrorism because as you said i mean we've obviously responded by having uh you know some of the toughest anti-terrorism laws in the world uh arguably toughest breaches of of civil liberties uh but where do we get the evidence base from where where, where do people like yourself sort of see this debate evolving to or or has everyone got an idea of a terrorist from watching a movie and thinks they're an expert? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> you know, enough. like that's what, <laughs> pretty much. The, the thing, 9-11 brought terrorism to our screens. Now, terrorism was on our screens before that as well. In the 1970s, when you had the kind of rise of international terrorism, airplane hijackings and whatever. But you think about 9-11 and the world witnessed in real time through the magic of television, witnessed a major terrorist event. And the thing about putting people in the position of witness is you kind of almost put them in the position of expert as well. If I can't tell you how many people have told me I'm wrong and my Mm. evidence is wrong and my 10 years of research is wrong because they saw it on TV. Mm? So people do, and, and, you know, that's what the kind of the new... Media ecology has done as well. It's given people the tools to develop their own kind of knowledge and expertise, um, but, you know, it's not that clear cut. You're very right in saying we, we approach counterterrorism in a very traditional way, and the wisdom of employing a traditional military response to terrorism um, has rightly been questioned because what we find is that you can't, you can't bomb terrorism out of people's minds. You can't arrest it out of their hearts. 
you can't do these things. So um, that 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 shift is necessary. In terms of the level of expertise that we have in Australia, I don't. I, I think we need to build that level of expertise. We have a really great generation of young people coming up who have who have who are studying counterterrorism, um, who are developing um, some expertise in it. We still lack um, expertise in the cyber elements of it and cyber enabled terrorism in particular, where um, digital technologies are used um, to do everything from influence, recruit, raise funds for terror acts of terrorism. Um, I think we need a lot more international cooperation. Um, this is not an issue that Australia is facing on its own. Um, and so that's something that I've been um, really frustrated with, the lack of the lack of kind of international cooperation. Uh, working with countries in Europe that have a long history of dealing with, um, as I mentioned earlier, your civil society structures and dealing with prevention of terrorism, particularly in the far right space, working with our nearest neighbours, Indonesia and Malaysia and, and countries like that. So I think we do need to develop the, the kind of the, the, the um, professional base in terms of develop, developing an evidence base. Obviously, it's difficult to interview um, convicted terrorists for a number of reasons. Um, sometimes also, you know, because they're they're dead. Um, so it's not just difficult; it's impossible. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot we can learn by talking to formers, to people who have left terrorism behind. Um, and there's some great work that's done. Um, in the US on, on why people leave terrorism behind. One of the things that I always say is nobody, I've, I've interviewed about 20 former, former terrorists as part of a project that I was doing. One of the things I always say is nobody ever left terrorism because somebody presented them with a fact sheet. Never. There's always an emotional connection. Right? There's always a seed of doubt that's been planted. And then almost a kind of an epiphany of some sort that happens to move people away, make them question their involvement in the movement and move people away from that. We need a bigger evidence base, but we're not going to get that working solely among ourselves. We need to work more internationally with that. And most of the research that I did was international because simply because there was no empirical base, uh, evidence base that I could draw on in Australia. Um, and and that that you know developing that expertise and developing that professionalism needs to be also part of that is that that development of civil society structures to be able to deal with it. That was Labor MP and counterterrorism expert Dr. Anne Alley talking in conversation with Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute about Australia's approach to tackling far-right supremacy. We're going to hear just another short clip from Dr. Ali, which talks about the ideologies uh, underpinning these groups. Last week, she explained that far-right extremism exists in a number of different ways in Australia, not all of which manifest in violence. Now we're going to hear what the groups have in common. 
a desire to reclaim white nationalism and the superiority of the white race. I found this very interesting for reasons I'll mention after we hear the clip. Here's Anne. So I'll answer that question by going through the ways in which all terrorist movements construct themselves. And they do that by constructing themselves as a movement that is responding to some kind of existential threat, either a real threat or a perceived threat. The terroristic propaganda has some consistencies regardless of where it comes from. And those consistencies can be found in four elements. The first one is orientation. And that is it, it, within the right, far right, it's about the condition of the white races. It's about reclaiming white nationalism. Uh, then comes the problem. The problem is that society is degenerating because of lefties, of, because of Muslims, because of Jews, because of multiculturalism, because of homosexuality, etc. And that's fueled, of course, by uh, the Great Replacement uh, Conspiracy, which is a, con- is a theory that the white races are being overtaken, if you like, by multiculturalism. Um, the third part is the solution. The solution is according to them, to restore the white races and the superiority of the white race. And then the fourth part is the required course of action, which is violence, bringing about a race war, um, anarchy, basically, anti-authoritarian, bringing down the the, um, authoritarian institutions that are part of this conspiracy to replace the white races. Okay, so that was Anne describing this very fundamental ideology that underpins uh, the beliefs of far-right extremism groups. I just wanted to take that point a bit further and connect it to the broader conversation in Australia about systemic racism. Since hearing Anne's talk, I have heard two separate authors speak about the intersection of racism in different cultural contexts and the rising global far-right movement. Durrambul and South Sea Islander journalist and author Amy McGuire spoke last week about the connection between white supremacy and Aboriginal deaths in custody at another Australian Institute discussion. Talking about the unjust treatment of Indigenous Australians, particularly by police, she reminded the audience that Australia is a settler colony that was established on the basis of white supremacist ideology. The very foundation of the colony and the institutions that underpin its workings are constructs of white supremacy. The Australia Institute convener, Ebony Bennett, who had also chaired the Anne Alley talk the previous week, swiftly connected the two discussions, suggesting that we shouldn't be surprised that far-right extremism ideology is deeply embedded in Australia. Then just yesterday, as I said, I attended virtually a Festival of Perth event where Ethiopian-American academic and author Maza Mengeste was speaking about her Booker shortlisted novel, The Shadow King. She also connected the unfinished business of European colonisation in Africa with the resurgence of white supremacist groups. She said Italy in particular must deal with the uncomfortable truths about the colonisation of Africa if it is to deal with present-day fascism and racism. So it's a a huge area to unpack, but I thought it was important to to draw that extra connection because we often uh, place these groups on one side of the political realm or the other and forget how 
connected it is to the whole society and has impacts in, in so many ways. So I'd like to thank the Australia Institute for sharing the audio that we've heard this morning. And to hear more discussions like this or to listen in full to Dr Ali's presentation, you can go to the australiainstitute.org.au forward slash events. And if anything raised in the discussions this morning trigger emotions for you or you need support in dealing with any of the issues raised, call Lifeline 131114 or for any emergency, contact the police on triple zero. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year, and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR, you can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. And you're listening to Monday Breakfast 3CR. It's 7.40am and... We're going to listen to a segment with Auntie Hazel from Grandmothers Against Removals. So I spoke to Auntie Hazel on Friday about their rally, which was two Fridays ago now, in Sydney, about the removal of two Aboriginal children who were taken away from their family, their country and their community to England. They are in the UK with two British foster carers who will not bring them back. I didn't know much about this before I talked to Auntie Hazel on Friday, so you'll hear my ignorance throughout the whole segment. But um, here is Auntie Hazel, and the first question I asked was, why were they protesting in Sydney on the the other Friday, and what was the message behind the campaign? It went well. Um, We didn't have a lot of um, people turn up, but that was okay. And the main main thing that was discussed was the fact that there are two Aboriginal children currently living in England with English carers. I don't know whether you're aware mm. of that situation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, like, I, I also spoke about the, the department's commitment that they have in at the front of, inside their foyer at their offices where... You know, it's, it's their commitment of working with with families. And so the fact that we have two Aboriginal children currently living in England at this point in time mm. and their stay is extended until um, July at this point, it's further highlighted, you know, the inadequacies of the department in working with families. So that, that was the main topic um, at that point in time and it was also about you know stolen generation is a continuing thing it never stopped even after Kevin Rudd said sorry mm-hmm. and unfortunately this is the 13th anniversary of that apology and 
So challenging the government as to why this is still occurring in yeah. this day and age. Mm. And what were, why were those children taken to England? Why did they go to the UK in the first place? Well, uh, the female foster carer was a manager at an NGO called Kari, and she was actually the the two children's caseworker prior to being a manager. Mm. And she, her and her partner were authorised as carers, and the children were placed in their care. Now, the difficult thing with that that I have is that they were only here in Australia on a working visa. Um, they don't have dual citizenship or anything like that. And it fails the imagination as to why they were even endorsed as carers within Australia, given the fact that they were here on working visas. So the, the male foster carer, because they had to go back to England every six months to update their working visa. Mm. Um, the male carer did not come back to Australia, so the female carer wanted to go back to England. Um, and the department signed off on the two children going back with them to England. And wow. Mum found out um, last year uh, early February that the children were to fly out the next day um, and I was contacted and made many many phone calls and um, was very vocal with the department about the fact that we were the world was in a global pandemic at that point in time um, and that these children should not be flown out of Australia they didn't go at that point in time, um, pending a medical condition of, um, assessment of the children. Mum and Dad both, um, like Mum's not, Mum and Dad's not together. Um, Mum's got another child here in Australia in out of home care, and Dad's got another another child to another relationship. Um, so mum and dad are both, were both saying they didn't want the children to go to England at all. And the department agreed to them going over with the carers on the proviso that they return in six months time. So the children did go to England last year. They were due to come back in October. The two foster carers are refusing to return to Australia with the children or have the children return. Um, so the department tried to negotiate with them. Um, they did offer to buy them a house anywhere in Australia. Mm. They offered to buy them a car, fully furnish their house, um, pay them a wage a weekly wage, and on top of their carers' payment if they were to return to Australia with the children. The carers are refusing to do that. In actual fact, 
refusing to engage with the department. Now, the department's saying that they've got to um, listen to the voices of the children. The children are globetrotting, um, so they're saying they want to stay with the foster carers. Mm. They don't want to come back to Australia. They don't want to have anything to do with, have any contact with mum or dad or their siblings living in Australia. Um, and like my argument is, I have you know, 41 grandchildren. If the department was to offer even half of them the possibility of globetrotting and going to all these wonderful places, I'm sure they'd all be putting their hands up to go as well. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is these are First Nation children. They should not be out of the country. Um, how do they, you know, grow up to be strong Aboriginal children as adults? Um, if, if they're not engaging with their culture. Yeah. And, you know, mum, mum and the family are meant to have, um, visitation with these children. That's not even occurring because they're in another country. Wow. You know, it's a very, very difficult situation. And the sad thing is, this is, um, this is not an isolated case. Mm. I mean, how yeah. have two British foster carers got more say in what happens to those children than the community? How has it even got to that point? Oh, I know. It just defies imagination. My argument is um, why are they still classified as carers within Australia? under Australian law, how, how is that possible when they haven't got dual citizenship, they're not in Australia, they're currently living overseas? How is the department maintaining these children's safety? Um, you know, they're well, exactly. they're, the department's argument is that they're liaising with the departments over in England, um, I mean, what do the they, what do they know about of Aboriginal children in England? Well, that's right. Mm. And you know, I've recently spoken to a um, well, he's young to me, um, a young man that was taken as a baby to to Holland, and he came back to Australia twenty years ago, and he's forty one years of age now. And he's, he's reconnecting with his family. And he's very distraught about it because he, you know, I did speak to him last Wednesday and he said he knows exactly what's going to happen with these children. Like, mm. they're, they're not going to know where they come from. It's, it's a very, very hard situation. And the department has admitted to me that this is not an isolated case. Now, I don't know whether they're Aboriginal children that are currently living in foreign countries with carers. Um, but the bottom line is, these children, regardless of their race or their culture, they are Australian children and they do have Australian families here. 
So why are they being shipped out to other countries with foreign carers? Mm. It, it, it's a flaw within the system, another flaw it's, that needs yeah. to be rectified. Do they know? Do they do they um, do they know it's a flaw within their system? Is it something that they are looking to change, or are they not really looking to to cover that? I, in any... I don't. I don't feel that they're looking at change. Mm. Um, they're telling me it's a loophole that this has occurred. But as I said, this is not an isolated case. So they're aware that there's a loophole within their system. Um, this should have been rectified straight away. The fact that these carers aren't Australian citizens, they don't have dual citizenship, um, alone should have, should have stopped them becoming carers. Exactly. If they have to do a visa run every six months, they probably shouldn't be carers in Australia. No, no. And... Like, as I said, it, it has been acknowledged to me that it's a, a loophole. Mm. Um, and I said, well, for Christ's sake, you better get in there and close that loophole because it's getting wider. Like, it just opens the door and sets a precedent for this to occur on a regular basis. And how do we know as individual families mm. um, that, that this is happening? How do we know how many children are in this situation where they're shipped to another country? And But now they're, they're citing the fact that these carers and these children have a bond um, and the fact that, you know, that overrides mum's bond with them because mum, they're not living with mum, they're in the system. Um, but as I say to the department, you're further widening and breaking down that bond mm -hmm. where these children now are saying they don't want to come back, they don't want to see mum, they don't want to see dad, they don't want to see nan and even their siblings. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've always said, you know, these children have a voice, they need to be heard. But the department's picking and choosing. Now they're saying we have to listen to the children. Well, my argument with that is they don't listen to the children when they're taking them. They don't consider that these children have a bond with their family. They, they don't consider that at all when they're removing children. Mm. And I think... So, if, yeah. You know, mm. And if you're not familiar with the way that the family services are working and operating in this case, in these cases, as, as an ignorant listener, maybe you might think, oh, well, if, if the children are being taken out of risky homes or families that are in crisis, then it might be it might be for the best. But what is actually happening when when children and babies are being taken away from their mothers and their families and communities? Do services even need to give a reason as to why they're taking the children away? Nine, nine, nine times out of ten, um, we're, we're not given a reason. Uh, I'll explain. I had grandchildren in out-of-home care. 
um, I had four grandchildren in out-of-home care. Um, we weren't given a reason. Um, I was I was deemed un, unsuitable to have my grandchildren. When they when they take take the children from families, um, they don't they don't only take them from mum and dad, mum or dad. Um, they take them from the whole of family, the whole of community. The process that they're meant to go through, um, where they're meant to liaise with family, where best can we put these these little ones? Um, I like to call it respite, so that we can look at the issues, if indeed that there are, um, and how how do we build a strong family? whilst these children are in a safe environment. They're, they're meant to look at family first, then community, then the broader community. Um, they, don't, they don't do any of that process. They go straight to the removal and nine times out of ten the children are placed with non-family and non-community members. The, the difficult thing is also if they are placed with a family member, the department looks at breaking down that, that family relationship by saying to, like in my situation, um, your daughter's not allowed to come to the house, your daughter's not allowed to do this, your daughter's not allowed to do that. To me, that, that's putting that wedge between family and trying to break down that bond. Whereas if, if the children are placed with a family member, say Nan, a sibling, or another fa- extended family member, then that little one is going to know that family member. So the trauma inflicted on that child alone is going to be very minimal. And we're... You know, if mum can come to the house and visit with that little one, then it's up to the carer to determine whether it is okay at that time. Now, say mum comes and she's drug affected or she's alcohol affected, then I can assure you 100% that I would be saying, no, not at this time. So what it, what it's all meant to do is strengthen the family unit. So helping put in place mechanisms that is going to build that family to a strong family. And that was Auntie Hazel from Grandmothers Against Removals. And we were initially talking about two Aboriginal children who've been taken away from their family and taken to the UK and then a a broader conversation about um, caring in Australia. Um, Yeah, that was quite an emotional interview, so please do take the time to take take a moment off or a quiet moment, um, but we're going to play Archie Roach took the children away now. This story's right, this story's true. I would not tell lies to you Like the promises they did not keep And how they fenced us in like sheep Said to us, come take care of him 
Archie Roach, 
On Thursday last week, many Australian organisations, including government health services, First Nations media, community broadcasters, charities and campaign groups, woke up to find their Facebook pages blank. It was an action of Facebook in response to proposed mandatory media bargaining laws requiring the social media giant to pay for news uploaded on its platform. In the midst of a global pandemic and on the eve of vaccination rollouts, the move was met by universal outrage, described as an attack on democracy, a breathtaking display of defiance. As a community radio station, we know how vital communication networks are to a range of diverse and vulnerable communities. Community broadcasters deliver health and emergency information in a range of languages and in a culturally appropriate way. Here to talk about the impact of Facebook's actions on the community broadcasting sector is the CEO of Community Broadcasting Association of Australia, John Bissett. Welcome, John. Hi, Claudia. Um, Great to be here. Thank you very much. Can you tell us what happened and what your initial response was last Thursday? Uh, I think you summarised it very well. We woke up uh, Thursday morning and there was a large number of uh, Facebook pages across the country uh, that uh, had simply had the word no posts written on them. And uh, um, as you uh, mentioned, that you know that was First Nations media, that was community radio stations like 3CR, that was um, charities, uh, the Bureau of Meteorology, all sorts of organisations uh, whose pages were down. And had um, any of these organisations had notice that this was going to happen? Uh, there was absolutely no notice at all. Um, uh, it was uh, a surprise, I think, to everyone um, to find their pages down when they, they woke up Thursday morning. So before we get into um, how it has specifically affected community broadcasters, I wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind to clarify for listeners what the new bargaining code is supposed to cover and in what circumstances uh, is it required that Facebook would pay for news or other information that is posted? Um. The the News Media Bargaining Code uh, is a a piece of uh, proposed legislation. It's um, uh, being debated by uh, a parliament at the moment that that basically aims to um, ensure that uh, media, uh, internet um, organisations such as Google and Facebook are contributing and uh, paying for uh, news content that appears on their, their platforms. And the The legislation covers a number of things. Um, It defines news, um, and it, um, in my reading, um, though that's not Facebook's argument, um, defines news uh, or journalism quite um, narrowly as um, uh, uh, public interest journalism, uh, really. Um, And it goes on to require anyone delivering that to uh, undertake that journalism in terms of professional standards, and there's listed professional standards. There's a um, an arbitration clause that enables uh, media agencies or media organisations and Facebook or Google uh, to uh, go through an arbitration process. Uh, it's all those sorts of things. Um, so it's really aimed to uh, address um, what's seen um, quite widely as a, an imbalance between uh, the internet um, 
uh, companies uh, and the media organisations um, that have been significantly disrupted uh, over the last uh, decade or so. So it was supposed to relate to news only, but it actually went much further to include non-news posts. I, I believe uh, Facebook subsequently apologised and claimed that this was accidental due to a faulty algorithm. We've had a few listeners uh, dialing in on our talkback this morning and uh, giving a range of uh, responses to what's happened last week. Um, one of them was in relation to that claim by Facebook that the the taking down of the the webs uh, the the social media pages was accidental. Um, what do you make of that explanation? Look, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, I probably uh, imagined that it was driven by an algorithm. Um, you know, someone has to design an algorithm. No, and whether it was accidental, I don't know. But look, they have um, they have replaced a lot of pages, and even over the weekend, I had some. Um, uh, conversations with various people and uh, they've replaced uh, or put back up some community radio station sites. They haven't put up uh, many others. Um, uh, just checked a few minutes ago and 3CR was still down, for example. Um, so, look, I don't know, but it, um, it seemed like a very... Uh, it, it seemed like it went, well, it did go uh, way too far um, uh, and... Uh, you know, we've been calling on Facebook to reinstate all the community broadcasting First Nations media uh, pages um, uh, immediately. So when that happens, or if that happens, what uh, will you expect to see back up on those Facebook pages? Will you be expecting uh, the news uh, also to be up, or are you expecting only non-news uh, to be uh, rectified? Look, I think that's a really good question. We've asked for our pages to be uh, put back up um, immediately. Uh, You know, we would hope that all content uh, that community radio stations and other uh, media organisations want to put up can be put up. Um, We're calling on Facebook to engage with the government around this news media bargaining code. I, I think what's really important, though, is Community radio stations like Tricia uh, don't rely on Facebook. Facebook's just one of many, many ways they communicate. Um, uh, and, you know, I think it's really important that um, radio stations, media organisations have a, a, a diversity of, of ways they communicate. So these sort of things happen in the future. Um, um, we're a bit better prepared and, um, it, you know, it's... Uh, we have many, many ways to communicate with our audiences. What are the sorts of information that uh, community broadcasters have been posting on Facebook and how have they been affected over the last week? Have you had particular organisations um, coming to you with uh, you know, dismal stories of uh, the impact? Oh, look, I think the impact varies significantly um, between uh, many stations. And, uh, and I will say, I think, um, you know, while Facebook pages are important to community radio stations, they don't rely on them. And uh, many stations have uh, gone on their way and continue doing the amazing things, broadcasting to their, to their audiences that they have always uh, done. But, you know, it's, it's important that, um, you know, Facebook is... Uh, 
an important channel. Um, you know, it's the social media channel that uh, the most people in the world um, subscribe to. Um, so it's important that community radio stations, First Nation media organisations, are able to continue uh, posting and, you know, posting the important things they do, which is um, certainly, you know, very... They, they do that in a very different way to the, the multinational um, news organisations... Uh, uh, you know, like News or um, others. I was reading in the conversation last week, there was a survey carried out by the University of Canberra which showed that elderly and regional news consumers will be disproportionately affected by the Facebook decision. Um, they cited elderly um, people, sort of baby boomer generation and onwards, uh, rely solely on Facebook if they do use social media compared to younger generations who tend to be more diversified. And then regional um, have obviously suffered a huge uh, loss in terms of a lot of local newspapers being shut down over the last 12 months. Um, So in terms of accessing local news and information, um, there would be disproportionately uh, more people in regional areas that may be... um, Affected, is that your understanding uh, in terms of uh, radio in those uh, sectors? Yeah, there's. Uh, you look across the, the little over fifty pages that are um, community radio and First Nations pages that have been shut down. Most are in regional uh, areas. Um, um, just noting that also, you know, seventy percent of community radio stations are actually in regional areas. So you would you would expect that. I think, um, you know, from other conversations um, I've been having with, uh, for example, the, the sort of up-and-coming hyper-local news sector or hyper-local news publishers that are publishing um, predominantly online or nearly entirely online, um, uh, you know, they've been quite devastated by this as well and rely um, significantly on uh, Facebook for traffic. I was, um, you know, talking to a, um, a small, well, suburban... Sydney-based um, uh, online news service who, you know, promotes their local um, local suburb, um, and uh, you know their traffic was initially uh, quite down. And um, I think you know people are missing people aren't missing the national stories uh, really through this. People are going to be missing those local uh, local community stories, those stories that are for a particular audience, whether that's a First Nations audience or a multicultural audience or or, or any, um, you know, specific uh, community. Yeah, it's also about the sort of social bonds that are so um, important in communities, um, particularly those that are outside urban areas. I also just wanted to ask you about um, the bargaining power of... Uh, not-for-profit profit news operations such as community radio stations compared with um, the larger commercial media outlets. Are you expecting to um, end up in any bargaining with Facebook? And if so, um, how are you um, positioned to, to deal with them? Uh, look, I, I think that's a great question. And... Um, I think how I think two things really. Um, you know, as the CEO of the Community Broadcast Association Australia, you know, most of our stations um, are predominantly doing audio-based 
uh, news, um, which is a um, which is certainly covered by the code. But um, you know, our we'd anticipate that um, it's going to be the the online or print, you know, online print type publishers that. Uh, and TV that will probably benefit from this the most um, upfront. Uh, it's going to be very difficult. I think one of the challenges we have is, you know, the community broadcasting sector is 457 licensed uh, individual organisations uh, and independent organisations, and uh, um, it's going to be very difficult for every single one of those to independently bargain with uh, Google and Facebook and certainly the vast majority of those um, uh, would have limited capacity um, capability to to do so um, so it's going to be it's going to be interesting I mean the code um, I think I sort of said earlier is is, is designed for the larger media organizations you know it's about um, that, that's where the pressure is coming from that's um, uh, and it's really important through this process and we're certainly um, uh, reaching out to government, have been reaching out to government, emphasising that not to forget the small publishers and the small uh, community radio stations and the, the um, First Nation media organisations in this in this code. And uh, um, that's going to be an ongoing challenge uh, going forward. Well, we'll watch this space with you um, and... I think I can say we're all in this together. Um, thank you very much, John Bissett, CEO of Community Broadcasting Association of Australia, talking to us about uh, the uh, impact of Facebook's actions last week on um, the community broadcasting sector. And I'll just uh, pass on um, to listeners if uh, anybody's interested in um, campaigning to fight uh, Facebook, you can log on to Organise Us at www.organiseus.com.au um, and they've got a, a, a campaign running uh, there. Um, and also perhaps to, uh, just following on from John's uh, comments, uh, maybe if you're reliant on Facebook, it's time to, uh, to look to some alternative social media for your uh, news and information. And just to round out Monday Breakfast for the week, we're going to hear from Tanner Douglas, who is the author of a memoir called Loud. Uh, Tanner Douglas is the world's first female roadie. Uh, she's worked with ACDC, Elton John and Ice Cube and many other uh, acts. And she has a fascinating story, especially since she started that work, uh, that career at the age of 15. Uh, we also spoke about the impact of COVID-19 on the music industry and the challenge of breaking ground as the first female in a male-dominated industry. But I started off by asking Tana just what music meant to her. Music was really important. It was, in my mind, the only steady thing in my life. You know, I could, I could rely on it, if that makes sense. Um, I, had, I had a pretty bad um, childhood, so it was very erratic and, and quite, you know, violent at times and, and just not at all nurturing. So what I would do is I would just escape to my room and I'd put on my little earplug. You know, you only had one in those days. <laughs> put, in my little, put in my little one earplug and stick my head under the pillow and listen to my transistor radio, you know. And it would just take me away, you know, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to get away. So that's what music did for me. It, it transported me somewhere else 
I think it's something that uh, a lot of people can identify with, especially during these lockdown times where, you know, they might be set, you know, you might be living alone, alone and separated from everyone on the radio or, and music and um, spoken word plays a big role in people's lives. Yeah, that will always be the case with music, I feel. It's, it's such a strong soul healer, I guess is a way to put it. You know, it's, it's something that, you know, you can come to terms with, you can come to terms with it on your own terms, you know, but it, it's there and, and it's supportive and it just makes you feel good. <laughs> <laughs> and from your yeah, tough, tough beginnings in Queensland, it's a long and winding road to working on the big shows. Uh, your first production work was a non-musical live performance on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Could you tell us that story? <laughs> yeah, that was my first dally with production of any sort. And even though it wasn't music, as you say, it was uh, the tightrope walker, Philippe Petit. He'd come out for Nimbin Festival, which was up uh, above Byron Bay area. Where, well, well, I guess everyone knows where Nimbin is now. It's still going after all these years. Yeah. And um, <laughs> little did we know at the time. And, um, yeah, and what we did is we took off down to um, Sydney, and that was his main plan was to walk between the towers, you know. And that was a production in itself, even though there wasn't music involved, you know. They had the blueprints for the bridge. They had to get the steel cables right. They had to rig everything. They had to get his, like, his balance pole and make sure it was just right. So when he's up there and, you know, and he could, because he not only walked, but he actually stopped and lay down on the wire which was just amazing wow and yeah it was it was absolutely amazing and and it was it became one of his standard go-to things you know he did that when he was crossing between the twin towers which was his next major walk after that so yes i mean he was a performer and and that was a production and and that sort of set the tone for me that you know there was there was an excitement to it there was you know a time pressure to it there was, this has to be done now, it's got to be done on time, it's got to be done right. And I just thrived on it. I thought it was fabulous. So that whet my appetite. And then if I could put music into the picture, which I was lucky enough to do by becoming a roadie, I was in heaven. Now, that, so you were the first female roadie. And in the postscript for Loud, you mentioned that currently only 12% of the music industry touring workforce is made up of women. Um, well, as the first female roadie, could you talk about that experience, the challenges you faced coming up in the industry and the headway you made? Yeah, I mean, it was hard. It was a, it was a wild and woolly time, you know. I mean, there were no rules. Everyone was just, you know, it was every man for himself pretty much, you know. And, and it was hard work and it was long hours and it was multiple shows in a day in different locations. And, you know, you just had to be in there for the long haul, you know. You couldn't. You know, you couldn't be two shows into the day and go, oh, you know, I'm a bit tired. I think I'll skip the next one. <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't work like that. You know, you, once you're in, you're in. Once you're in, you're in. And so, you know, that's and, – and, you know, so physically it's demanding. Mentally it's demanding. Well, let's just go back to that statistic for a moment. An estimated 12% of the music industry touring workforce is made up of women. Uh, but women are also underrepresented other ways in the music industry, such as – uh, the number of female acts headlining music festivals. Have you, how have you seen the industry change and what work still needs to be done in terms of representation? Yeah, I mean, it's still a low number. I mean, it, it's, it's a very low number. And, and originally in the early days, so to speak, you know, it was almost considered a bit of a hassle if it was a female. You know, it's like, oh, do we have to make special conditions for her or, you know, and... and which you don't, you know. I mean, just, just the basic essentials we can survive with. But 
it was just felt that it was a male-dominated industry and it was just easier men being men, men amongst themselves. You know, now there are, you know, it, it is considered. I mean, you know, female artists are incredibly talented. You know, they're also, you know, huge money makers in the industry. And so the industry as a business, now it's become this huge business machine, is accommodating for that. And, you know, it's starting to trickle down into the road crew side as well. You know, even though, you know, we don't make any special demands, we can't, we're just part of the crew. But because the conditions have changed where there are now, like, for example, there's backstage restrooms that you can use, you know, there's showers you can have after the show. There's, you know, just basic needs that, that you know, everyone needs really, but it makes it more, um, it makes it more appealing for females to actually want to do it, I think, you know, because there are some creature comforts at least. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I imagine... Yeah, apart from all the, you know, the equipment needs and everything, you know, I mean, we don't expect any special treatment. We come to do a job. Yeah, exactly. Now, you must have seen thousands of live shows, um, admittedly, from backstage, I guess. Uh, Do you have a favourite live performance? Wow, you know, that's so hard. Um, You know... there's a few different a few different shows that that are, that are favourites for different reasons. You know, like um, when I was with Elton and we did uh, Madison Square Garden and Yoko came on stage with Sean and there was a tribute to John Lennon. That was a special show. You know, that was that was a good show and the and the music for that show that night, the performance by the band was really really good. You know, so that that was a good show. You know, there's, you know, there's different shows for different reasons. You know, whether, you know, you're at a Lollapalooza concert and watching Pearl Jam go off. I mean, they were in their element there. You know, it was just a great thing to watch. You know, you'd see the crowd going. Mosh pits were all new at the time. So, you know, things like that affect the performance. And it usually leads back to the audience, to be honest. You know, if the audience isn't getting it, then it makes the show really much more difficult. But, you know, these, all these shows, you know, I mean, and that's what we're missing right now is the live contact performances, you know, where everybody feeds off each other's energy. You know, that's what a live show is all about. I was about to say that you're making me uh, feel nostalgic for live music. Now, you're based in L.A. Um, just in the last week, California has surpassed New York for total number of COVID-related deaths. So I'm guessing there's not many live shows going on where you are. Um, how has coronavirus impacted the live music industry and what do you reckon the road to recovery looks like? It's crippled it. The industry's crippled. You know, it's crippled in America, it's crippled in Europe, it's crippled in the UK. I mean, you guys are fortunate. You know, you can at least do some sorts of shows at the moment, you know, even though I think Melbourne just went into shutdown yesterday, you know, which was a bit tough or the day before. And um, But, you know, what that does in itself is it affects travel. There's no, there's not going to be any international tours because you can't afford to do an international tour if you don't hit all of the markets. You know, you can't just say, oh, Australia's open, let's go there. It's not economically feasible, you know, and then it's like, well, in two months, England might be open, but you might book the tour. But by the time the dates come up, it may be shut down again. So, I mean, there's no one's willing to insure a show at the moment, a concert, because they don't know if it's going to happen or not. Who's going to pay that? Who's going to foot that bill? I mean, it's decimated at the moment. It really is. And um, crew people especially are suffering majorly, major, all over the world because we fall through the cracks where, we're, you know, private contractors 
you know, as far as like medical insurance and that goes, we have to be able to have an income so we can pay bills, you know, so there's no medical coverage, you know, there's house payments, there's car payments, none of these things are being met, everyone's burning through their 401ks, I'm, I'm not sure what you call it in Australia anymore. Ah, uh, super, I think. But superannuation, yeah, so, you know, all of those things are gone for an entire, you know, like three decades worth of workers have lost everything just because of the past 12, what's now coming up to 18 months, you know, and it's going to go on. All the, all the summer can concerts have cancelled again, so that's not going to happen. And, you know, they were thinking maybe August, but now it doesn't look like that either. So we're again looking at a whole other year. So it's just decimating the industry. It really is. And coming back is going to be a hard road. It is, but, it you know, music plays such an important role in people's lives, like you said at the start of the interview, you know, it is this healing force, and I really do hope that we um, start to see some live shows come back soon. I know that some bands have tried to, you know, do online shows or even, like, in drive-ins. I've seen uh, shows done that way, but it doesn't have that uh, same feeling as being shoulder-to-shoulder. Exactly. You've got, to be, you've got to be in the thick of it because that's where the energy comes from. It's, it really is just feeding off each other. You know, it's, it's, everyone becomes equal. You know, you can be a banker, you can be a punk rocker, you can be a mum of four kids, and, you know, you can be a, an, an unemployed dad, and you're all standing in a row in a festival, and it's all the same. You're all one. You know, it's a great equaliser. And that's what we need right now is we need some equalising going on, especially in this country. You know, so we need live music back and we just have to figure out a way that we can do it. That was uh, Tanner Douglas, the author of Loud, which is a memoir. It's about uh, um, her experiences as the first female roadie. Um, so that's out in bookstores now. And that's Monday Breakfast for the week. Thanks so much for uh, starting your week off with us. And thanks to all our guests. Um, and I'm sorry that we didn't get a chance to get to all your text messages, guys, but we're going to make the text line a, uh, a standard part of the show. So, um, we'll, we'll get that, we'll get that out to you, uh, next week as well. Uh, stay tuned for Women on the Line.